Luke 18, 9 through 14. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. We're going through this book, Short Stories uh, by Jesus by Amy Jill Levine. That's kind of where all these are being based from uh, for this. It's a thick book, and if you've got like a week to read it, it's very meaty. Uh, it's a, there's a lot of good content in here, but it is very thick and sometimes hard to get through. So hopefully I can pare this down a bit for you, for everyone to get a sense of where she's coming from and how first century Jews would have understood this text. Because um, as I was reading through there and then reading this, a lot of what we think about the Pharisee and the tax collector really isn't what the first century Jews would have seen and understood at this time. Um, so I started to think about all this and then just realized back to my college days of, you know what, interpretation is extremely difficult. Uh, and understanding the original context is really hard. Because uh, fun fact, I looked this up because I was super curious. According to Wikipedia, as of 2019, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 different English translations of the Bible, whether they be full copies, portions, little texts, but 4,000. And if you, if you haven't really thought about this, um, like the original, so Luke and all the other gospels were written in Greek, ancient Greek, a dead language. So no one speaks it today. I had a professor in college who could just read it. Always jealous of that. I just, uh, but no one speaks it. So it's, it's really hard um, to get that. So when you're reading an English translation, whether it's NIV, which is what we read from today, or NLT, the message, you are not only reading someone's translation, but you're reading someone's interpretation of an ancient text. And sometimes those texts can be what's called transliterated, which is you have a word in Greek and it's literally translated to the word in English. Most of those translations don't make a lot of sense. Uh, New Revised Standard Version is one of those. Uh, so what the NIV tries to do is, tries to add some of our current cultural context on top of the ancient Greek context to try to figure out what we're gonna do. Uh, so yeah, all that to say, we're at an extreme disadvantage when we're two millennia removed from the original authors uh, and multiple languages removed from that current context as well. So a lot of the, a lot of the tiny little minutia details just get lost in translation, literally get lost in translation because we have no context for this where someone halfway across the world would have hopefully understood it a little bit better. Uh, so I, I pulled this out of Wikipedia and it, it's really great. Uh, Hebrew and Greek, like all languages, have some idioms and concepts not easily translated. There is, in some case, an ongoing critical tension about whether it is better to give a word-for-word -word translation, so the transliteration, or to give a translation that gives a parallel idiom in the target language, kind of like NIV, or the message. Message is really like the thing that like we read it here all the time. The message tries to give that more culturally Americanized of 
appropriation of what was happening in ancient Greek, not ancient Greek, uh, first century Jews for them. Anyway, so all that to say, it's really difficult to kind of pull out what is there. So we always come at these translations with our own ideas of what the Pharisee is and what the tax collector is and how they relate to us and what meaning we try to get out of that. And typically, when we try to come at it from our Americanized, culturally West ideals, we miss a lot of the points. But let's start with what we do know. We do know there's at least two characters in the story. Uh, one is the Pharisee and one is the tax collector. You could consider the temple a character, but mm, we're not going to do that for this one. So I was taught, as growing up and listening to the story, as I'm sure a good number of you were taught, that the Pharisee, the, Pharisee, the overly zealous guy, was the bad guy in this story. And the tax collector, the humble, repentant guy, kneeling on his, beating his breast, he was the good guy. But is that how we should interpret it? Is that how the first century Jews would have interpreted it, where the Pharisee was the bad guy and the tax collector the good guy? Uh, I don't, after reading this and going through there, I don't think that's where they would have landed at all. Uh, they would have come out with probably, they would have come out with the opposite idea at that. So we have this quote from Amy Jill Levine. I'm going to be quoting her a lot because she's got a lot of good content in her book. Just um, So we have these two conventional types, the upright and the fallen Pharisee tax collector. Because Jesus' story is a parable, and because parables do the unexpected, we might expect the unsubtle points that the sinner turns out to be a saint and the saint turns out to be satanic. And that is how the parable has traditionally been understood. Ironically, however, uh, this expectation is in part what the parable thwarts. The saint is not a sinner. The sinner is not a saint. And our conventionally unconventional reading about a reversal of status in the long run gets us nowhere. So yeah, our conventionally unconventional, like we're going to flip the roles, not, not really the right way. Uh, like as I've traditionally understood it and as others have traditionally understood it and have taught many, many a years. All right, so let's set some context here because context is king in the world of everything biblical and really the world of everything. Can't live without context. So the very first thing that Jews would have heard was neither the Pharisee nor the tax collector were behaving in normal ways for their time period. Like these are just, they're not normal. Um, the first is the Pharisee dismissing the tax collector completely. Like, thank you, God, that I'm not such a sinner as this guy. Like, that is not normal for a Pharisee to have done because they were community leaders. They were the ones that people went to for spiritual guidance and spiritual help. They didn't exist as the leadership inside the temple, but they were seen as community leaders. So for someone of that stature to say, well, I'm glad I'm not that guy, that was really just, that's not a thing. And then on the flip side, the tax collector being repentant that's also not a thing, because uh, as Luke portrays a lot in, the, in his Gospels, um, they, were, they were the bad guys. They were, uh, crap, I lost the word. Uh, they were a servant of Rome. They were the ones getting the money. They were uh, very wealthy. They were the ones who took more money than they should have. Think like Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. <laughs> yes, that's, that's been in my head like a lot. <laughs> Because she minted it in there, just it stuck. So cool. Uh, and so the other thing is, like, uh, the temple there. A lot of people sometimes think that the temple is seen as this overly repressive and or oppressive institution where not everyone's welcome, which is also not the case. Everyone was welcome in the temple uh, to varying levels of 
Like, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go into the entire way. If you were a woman, you couldn't go into the entire way. If you weren't a priest, you couldn't go into the holiest of holies. So, I mean, we're, we're dealing with a patriarchal society and first century Judaism. We can only go so far. But it was open for all to go into the temple. All right, so there's, there's some of the context. Let's start breaking down what's going on in the verses because there's some weird language stuff that's happening and just a lot of weird cultural things. So let's take a look at verse one, or verse nine. Sorry, not verse one. It's verse nine. It's one in the thing I'm doing. Uh, so this parable uh, is also found in a litany of just long list of parables that Luke is giving us that Christ taught to uh, his followers, the people around him that were following him, just a whole list, um, and like how they should view and act in their roles. So verse 9 reads, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. We don't know if he's teaching this to a crowd or if he's teaching this to his followers. Luke is not clear on that, but it doesn't really matter for this because it could be either or. It could be that he's teach, saying this to a group of people who has Pharisees in the crowd, or it could be to his followers saying, hey, don't be like this. This is not how you should live your life. Um, is that where that's supposed to go? Anyway. Ah, uh, yeah. I think I put a note in the wrong place. Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked and lost here. Uh, but yeah, so we don't know who he's teaching it to, all that fun stuff, but... This story is applicable to whoever's hearing it, even to us. It is still applicable to us with the proper context. So moving on to verse 10. To some who were, uh, to two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Again, not unusual for this to happen. Um, but when we read this, we're already starting to set up a picture in our head of there's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector. Where do our mentalities lie? Who do we want to side with in this story? Um, usually it's the tax collector. We want to, like we read, for, read through verse 14 and we come back and go, oh, I side with the tax collector in this because he's the obviously good thing. But uh, this is exactly the opposite of what a first century Jew would have encountered. They would have sided with the Pharisee because the Pharisee is the good guy in their head. They're, he's the, they're the ones teaching. Uh, the tax collector would have been soon to be corrupt. We're typically very, very rich and very well connected, um, which is what we're going to get to in the next verse here. So the mere fact that the tax collector is showing up in conjunction with a Pharisee is the really unsettling bit to the first century Jew. The fact that a tax collector is coming to a temple at all is odd. That's not something they did. That wasn't their realm. That wasn't their domain. Pharisees, sure, they would show up. They weren't in power. They weren't the leadership there, but they're fine. Leader. Tax collectors, no. Why, why would a tax collector repent? Dear Lord, what, what is they doing there? All right, so verse 11 and 12. This is where things start to get really weird, uh, especially with some of the language. The Pharisee stood by himself. Going to get to that word, uh, by and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evil duels, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Oh boy, let's start with by. Uh, so on the next slide, that actually is the word pros in Greek. 
uh, which that's kind of the definition that you get from the lexicon. So there's all these wonderful little books that have the Greek to English translation for us for people like me who didn't take Greek, but still need to know it because, well, we teach out of it. This word is translated usually to the word by in the English language. However, it can also mean to. So in some translations, this will actually read, the Pharisee prayed to himself. So whether or not you read as Pharisee prayed by himself or the Pharisee prayed to himself, uh, it's ambiguous in the Greek. So we readers, as Amy Jill Levine says, must choose just how obnoxious we find the Pharisee to be. <laughs> like, do you want to see him as a self-centered, egotistical, religious guy? Or do you want to see him just someone who's removed by himself and he's praying by himself and not out in front of others like Jesus has taught about in other parables and other stories. But how we do obsess the Pharisees' obnoxiousness, as Amy put it, puts it, and I would agree, says more about us than it says about the character. It says more about how we view the other person and how we view someone who's we might view as overly zealous and overly pious than it does about the character, because it says not much about that about the character. But, so once he starts to pray, he gets into this list of things that he's not and the ways that he's better, which also, again, not a normal prayer, like, at all. Like, that's just, who goes into saying, I'm not, the, I'm the best, I don't do anything wrong, look at all these ways, I don't do things, yay, I'm awesome. Like, no one prays like that, no one should pray like that. So this is definitely weird. Um, and kind of to the first century Jew, this would have been much something that would have set this character and this Pharisee to be a more of a caricature of an actual Pharisee rather than a portrayal of who one actually was. So right now we're already into what, three verses in, we're seeing a caricature of the Pharisees. So could we not also be seeing a caricature of a tax collector as well? Uh, and this already mentioned it, him saying, I'm not like the tax collector. Super not normal, not, not a thing. Like, who's going to go and say, I'm super glad? Like, if I were to sit up here, start teaching and do all that stuff and say, I'm so glad I'm not like Melinda, you all would think I'm crazy uh, or I should be not teaching anymore. Like, that's just, it's not right to do that. It's not good that no one who is in that level of authority would think to even do it. Um, and then he goes into the, that last bit, which is twice, twice weekly fasting, uh, which also was not normal at the time. Weekly fasting was normal, but twice weekly was just going over the top. The same with a tenth of everything. Okay, you give your tithe, but to give a tenth of everything you get, you're, you're being really overly zealous here. You're being overcommitted, and it, you're being just like a, like a single-honed character. Uh, you know, like every single race on Star Trek, like the, the Klingons are rage, the Ferengi are just uh, capitalism unleashed. Uh, you know, thought I'd throw that in there. I love Star Trek. It's my favorite thing. Um, and that's one of the things that's always pointed out, just how every single race is just a, a slice of the humanity exacerbated to the nth degree. But that's kind of what we're seeing here with the Pharisee specifically. We're seeing him pushed out there to levels that first century Jews would not have seen and would not have understood. And then verse 13, we start to hear about the tax collector. Now, as Jamie did point out, he is standing away at a distance. Um, and sometimes a lot of people will say he was, he was pushed out because he was ostracized by the community. 
That's not entirely correct because, as I mentioned earlier, he was a tax collector. He would have been very rich and very well connected. He would have known the people there, so why would he need to ostracize himself? He wouldn't have had to have done that. Um, but yeah, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So there's nothing in the text to support that he is standing by himself because he's being ostracized, or even like why he's standing apart from himself. He's just doing it, just like the Pharisee is standing by himself slash to himself in the preceding verse. Two preceding verses. He's also not doing it because of lack of purity. Like you don't have to be morally pure to go into the outer entries of the temple. The temple is open for all. The tax collector's problem here is his profession, not his purity. Like his profession is what makes him like not be liked, not who he is as a person. So there's also no reason to doubt the sincerity of his prayer of God have mercy on me, a sinner. I mean, that, it also reminds me of be merciful to me, a sinner such as I, like that we normally hear in our normal modern day concept. I don't know how many times I've heard that uttered by someone. Um, but yeah, he also just in this prayer admits his sin and his need for mercy. Uh, Amy did put in her book that uh, the beating his breast thing, I didn't write it down here because I just, but I remembered it. Uh, she said that's typically said by women. Like that's how women would typically beat their breast or something like that. A little odd. All right, verse 14. We're back at it. We're back at the really weird, random word stuff, but let's read it first. Uh, I'll tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, this is really the crux of this story, uh, verses 14. A, a lot of scholars actually think that the back half of this, where the for all those who exalt themselves, wasn't a part of the original teaching by Christ. It was tacked on by Luke as a way to kind of sum up what they just heard and or slash red in our case. So that for all those who exalt themselves, that part typically is believed to have been tagged on by Luke uh, to drive home the point of the story. But where my attention lies and where Amy's attention lies is the word rather. So if you look in the Greek text, rather than is actually one word. In this case, it's pa, a mark of contrast by means, of all that fun stuff. And it's not just, it can be translated in many ways. I should have taken a screenshot of when I looked at all the different words that this can be translated on, just the big spin wheel of a hundred different ways this is translated in the Greek New Testament. Like it's, it's translated all over the place and it's typically translated. Um, and here it's rather, I can't remember what it was. Let's just look at this, this morning. But it is, a, it is a tricky preposition, and prepositions are typically what trip us up. Um, they change the meaning of everything. I, I get tripped up in songs a lot of times with prepositions where I go, well, that changing that to in and or, uh, or of changes the complete meaning or through. Like changing the preposition can change the complete meaning. So here we say rather. And I'll ask this just generally. What do you think of when you hear the word rather? So this person did this rather than that. Opposite, okay. Instead of. 
Yeah, I mean, that's typically what you think of. It's, just, it's, a, it's an either-or denotion. Like, you're, you're this, or you're this. Like, none the two, never the twain shall meet, sort of thing. But that pesky Greek preposition, the para, as in paradox, parallel, paraclete, and parable, can mean rather than. It can also mean because of. Another meaning, and the one most familiar from the use of that prefix in English, is to set side by side. Its proper connotation is not one of antagonism, the word rather, but one of juxtaposition next to. As Amy says in her book on page 209. So rather than see this parable as a dichotomy between two opposing points, which are opposed to one another, maybe we should view this parable as complementary. That the Pharisee and the tax collector are not separate individuals and that their piousness or sinfulness is not the thing that separates them, but the thing that combines them together. Just reading more from uh, her book here because she's got a lot of good stuff in there. I, I do recommend reading it. Just It'll take you some time if you're not used to the sort of liturgical language she uses. Were Jesus to have told this parable to a group of Jews, they would have begun with the impression that the Pharisee was pious and righteous and the tax collector sinful and self-interested. It turns out the parable would have confirmed these views and yet it still provokes. Like even today, we st we're still provoked by this because we still have ideas of, like as I was taught, you should, you would, you should rather be, <laughs> rather be, you should be like the tax collector, sinful, beating your breast on your knees, repentant of your ways before God, and not be like the Pharisee who is shouting to the heavens and saying, "Look at me, for I am, I am great." Like that's, it provokes. We we think there, but. As she argues, and I very much agree, it's provoking for a different reason. Understanding the context of, you no, know, the Pharisees would have been an upstanding gentleman. The tax collector would have been the odd one in this scenario. Seeing their, their piousness and their sinfulness and their just desire to be better next to each other is the point. The moment we begin to place these characters over the other or negatively judge one, the parable has trapped us. For we are neither as pious as the Pharisee nor as sinful as the tax collector. We're neither or. We, we fit somewhere on that spectrum for sure, but we're neither of those things at all. And like this is, this is the crux of the matter here. Just as one person's sin can create a stain on the entire community, so one person, person's righteousness can save it. It is precisely by this transfer of good deeds that in one way of understanding Jesus' death, the cross works for salvation. Jesus' faithfulness is what allows others to be justified. So without the faithfulness of the Pharisee, the tax collector could not be justified. Without the tax collector having his sinful state, the Pharisee could not be as pious as he is. We need both to be whole and complete. When I think about like, that concept of you can't have everyone just be completely pious, you can't have everyone be completely sinful, I, I turn to, okay, where are we at in our modern day context with that? Well, we're in the church. And I look and I think, 
about like all those spaces. We have people here who serve on Sundays, either uh, teaching or helping out with children's church, godly play, nursery, songs, tech. Not everyone does that. Not everyone can do it. So those who serve in those ways help and bring up those who can't. And those who can't are here so that those other people can serve. You can't have one without the other. You can't have nothing but serve servants while having no one to participate. You can't, have, you can't have only participants without having people to serve. Or, if that doesn't sit well in your head, those who give generously with their money slash time and those who don't. Like, not everyone has the means to give in that way. Others, some do, some don't. And it's just a matter of we all come together. And what I like about Imago is one thing. We don't, we don't push it, um, which I like, but I also know that Melinda doesn't know who gives the most and who doesn't, um, which helps kind of even out the playing field. And so we don't know like who gives thousands upon thousands of dollars a year and who doesn't. We have to have both of those sides of the spectrum to be a full and complete community. Uh, to kind of also pair, pair this down, uh, she gives in the book uh, the analogy of, you know, you've been in a class project, right, where you've had multiple people working in a group and one person or two people do all the work and then you have that one person that just does nothing. Like they just, they don't do anything the entire group project and yet when you come to the end of grade, you all receive the same grade. Whether it's an A, an F, a C, whatever. So you, all, you get the same grade. Like it, it's not as great of an analogy as I, it's not a great analogy, but it works if that helps it in your head of the works of those who do the most help those who don't, and vice versa. Community is messy. Um, and at every moment of everything we do here, there are those who fall on every single side of that spectrum, whether they're leaning more toward the pious side or whether they're leaning more toward the sinful side. But like, as the first century Jews would have understood it, we are never as overly characterized or we are not a caricature on either side of that. We are ourselves. And it, it, something I was thinking about while reading this and kind of paraphrasing a little bit of hers. As we are saved by grace, on, by what Christ did on the cross two millennia ago, we must also rejoice when those we do not agree with or do not find desirable are also saved by grace. Through this parable, we see that grace cannot be limited because to do so would limit the divine. The divine is open for all. Whether you are on that pious side in the caricature or you're on the tax collector and you don't feel like you deserve it, the divine and the grace is there for all. So rather than see these two characters as opposing sides, we should be looking at this parable as a community of believers gathered together where, both people, where people are both pious and where they're not, coming together for something better and being saved by grace through Christ on the cross alone.